Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with the mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, We will be in Mark chapter 2 this morning, and so if you brought your Bible to church, always an excellent thing. Uh, Turn with me to the first book in your New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. If you uh, didn't bring your Bible, there should be a pew Bible somewhere in the seats in front of you, and if not, the text should be up on the screen. Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Uh, This morning we are going to uh, be in part 2 of our very short uh, Christmas holiday season sermon series called Home for the Holidays, Home for the Holidays. And so uh, feel free to turn to Mark, uh, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2, and uh, that's where we're going to pick up. So as you're doing that, uh, I would ask you to just uh, bow with me one more time. We're going to pray, and we'll jump right in. Father, thanks for a great morning. Uh, It's a wonderful time for us to uh, sing Christmas songs, to sing about the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, and uh, just to reflect on that and to worship him. Uh, That's what I pray that we're here for, is to worship you and to worship your son and Holy Spirit, to worship you together as God. Uh, And especially this season, we reflect on uh, his incarnation and the majesty and the glory and the mystery of it all. It's overwhelming, and yet we're so very grateful uh, that God became man. Holy Spirit, would you be among us now? Help us uh, to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to to learn lessons uh, from these people uh, as we're studying in the Gospels who were not home for the holidays, and yet they had great joy and experienced uh, you in new and fresh ways. And I pray that that would be the same for us as we hear familiar stories, dear Father, that we would uh, hear them afresh, that we would see them afresh, and uh, that we would learn and take away lessons from their lives and what you taught them as they were home, uh, not home from the holidays. And so we ask for your presence, we ask for your grace, and we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So again, part two of our holiday series, Home for the Holidays, and we're basically exploring uh, men and women who are not home for the holidays and lessons that they learned. That is, those who are not home for the holidays, the very first Christmas Uh, season when Jesus Christ was born. And so Matthew 2 is where we're going to be. But before we get into Matthew 2, uh, by way of introduction, uh, I wanted to give you several uh, examples this morning. Sometimes when we uh, communicate, whether it be with our spouse or our coworker or our siblings, sometimes the communication is very clear. And sometimes it works and we get the point across. And yet sometimes when we communicate, it's not very clear and the point is not understood by the the listener. Uh, This morning I kind of ran across, thanks to Dennis, 
Dennis. Dennis, thanks a lot for emailing me this. Uh, I ran across um, some church bulletin uh, announcements, if you will, uh, uh, bulletins and announcements that churches were trying to get across, uh, communicate clearly to their people that didn't quite get across or come across the way that they wanted. And so I just want to read some of these uh, as we begin. Uh, Examples of unclear communication. Number one, uh, ladies, uh, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of all of those things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husbands. <laughs> Number two, don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. <laughs> not our church, of course. <laughs> At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> Scouts are saving, uh, gathering aluminum cans, bottles, and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. <laughs> Hopefully not. Please place your donation in the envelope along with the deceased persons you want remembered. <laughs> uh, next one. Potluck supper tonight at 5 p.m. Prayer and medication to follow. <laughs> not at our diner, of course. The ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind. They may be seen in the basement on Friday afternoons. <laughs> this evening at 7 p.m., there will be a hymn sing in the park across from the church. Bring a blanket and come prepared to sin. <laughs> sing, hopefully. The pastor would appreciate it if the ladies in the congregation would lend him their electric girdles for the pancake breakfast next Saturday. And finally, maybe my favorite, low self-esteem support group meets Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. (laughs) You know, sometimes when we communicate, uh, it doesn't have its intended effect. It's unclear, and those listening might get a bit confused. Uh, This morning in Matthew 2, we're going to hear a story of what I would consider to be crystal clear communication. And this morning in Matthew 2, God is going to communicate to a group of men that the Bible calls the Magi. And he's going to communicate in a really crystal clear way about the birth of his son. He's going to communicate to them that there's a king that's going to be born and they will get the message. In fact, he uses several means of communicating. He communicates through his word, that is through Old Testament prophecy. He communicates through a star that they see high above. And he communicates even with a jealous king that they come into contact with. And so in part two of Home for the Holidays, we're going to learn three lessons. And so if you're taking notes, three lessons, jot them down, and then we'll walk our way through them. Three lessons that we learn from the Magi, uh, who, like Mary and Joseph, weren't home for the holidays, but experienced God in an amazingly new way. And so lesson number one, jot these down. Lesson number one that we can learn from our story from the Magi, Jesus is worthy of investigation. Lesson number one, Jesus is worthy of investigation. Number two, Jesus is worthy of conflict. Conflict. And number three, Jesus is worthy of joyful worship. So Jesus is worthy of investigation, conflict, and joyful worship. Let's begin with number one. The first lesson that I think the Magi learned is that Jesus is worthy of investigation. And we get this from verses one and two of Matthew chapter two. So let's read it again. Verses one and two out of uh, the gospel of Matthew. And I was in Mark. I kept saying Mark, and then I actually turned to Mark. No good, right? Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the king who who has been born 
king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so in these first couple of verses, we're introduced to the characters of the Magi. Now, as was portrayed in the movie and in several other popular portrayals, there are a lot of questions that surround these men. I mean, they're kind of shrouded with mystery. They just happen to show up on the scene. Not much is really said about who they are or where they came from or how they figured out that there was a king being born. But if we look at the details, we can put together a scenario that I think is pretty likely. Uh, And so let me just share with you the scenario I think that happened. So number one, who were the Magi? I think that the Magi were studied men. That is, they were wise men. In fact, that's kind of what we call them, right? Magi are wise men. Most likely, the text says that they were from the east. Uh, Most likely, they were from the land of Babylon. And that's significant because uh, several hundred years earlier, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. There were Jews in Babylon, and even during that day, there was a large Jewish population that had the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, living in Babylon. And so most likely, these are studied men from Babylon who were knowledgeable in a whole host of things. They were most likely, for sure, they were knowledgeable in astronomy. And so that's how they figured out what they saw in the sky, and that's why they paid attention to what they saw in the sky. But most likely, they were also studied in things like ancient literature, things like like the Old Testament, religion, science. And so basically, you have these guys living most likely in Babylon, and something happened. We don't know specifically. The text says that there was a star that they saw. There are all sorts of options as to what this star could be. It it was certainly an unusual phenomenon. It was something that caught their eyes. It was something unusual. We don't know what it was. Uh, It could have, there could be natural explanations for it. That is, it could have been uh, like a comet. It could have been a supernova. It could have been the coming together of three major planets or stars uh, to produce an extra shiny star. We don't really know. There are supernatural explanations as well. Uh, Some people think that this was an angel that was shining so brightly and and, and revealing God to them that it looked like a star. Some people think this was God's Shekinah glory, the light that exudes from his glory, as we saw in the Old Testament as God led his people out of the wilderness. The long and short of it is they call it a star, and we don't know exactly what happened, but they're in their homeland, and they see this unusual phenomenon. They see this star, okay? And it makes them think. There's something significant about this. This star that we're seeing in our homeland is trying to to communicate something with us. And most likely, they connected some dots. Most likely, what they connected the dots is there was an Old Testament prophecy. It's in Numbers chapter 24. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But there's a prophecy in Numbers 24 that relates a star with the birth or the coming of a new king. And in Numbers chapter 24, they, there's these dots that are connected. There's going to arise a star, and there's going to rise a ruler out of Israel. This is what Numbers 24, 17 says. It says, a star, there's the star part, a star will come out of Jacob. That is referring to the land of Israel. A scepter, that is a ruler, a king, a scepter will rise out of Israel. So most likely the scenario is this. They're in their homeland, they see this phenomenon, this star, they know of this prophecy, and they connect the dots and they say, there's a king that's going to be born in the land of Israel. And so what they decide to do, and this is the point, they don't just take that information and sit on it. In fact, they act upon it in a huge way. They decide to personally investigate the birth of this new king, which they told Herod that they had come to worship. 
They had come to worship this new king, not just to pay homage to him, but there was something unique about him. They wanted to worship him. And so they decide to investigate. It's not good enough for them to have connected the dots. They wanted to know for sure, in a really personal way, who this newborn king was going to be. And so they take a trip, okay? I don't know world geography that well, so I had to look it up. But if they were indeed from the land of Babylon and they traveled to to the land of Israel, it would be a trip of some 800 miles. So just think about that. You decide to go, there's a king being born, and you have to travel, not in your SUV, right, (laughs) on camel or on foot or on horse, 800 miles, which experts say would take you at least 40 days. So it will take you that much time, that much effort, that much energy to go and personally investigate who in the world is this newborn king. They wanted to personally know and they wanted to personally worship him. So the first lesson that I think that they learned and that we can learn this Christmas season is that number one, Jesus is worthy of investigation. He is worthy of us investigating who he is, who he claimed to be, who God's word says he is. And so let me speak to you and I now at this point. Um, I don't know where you are in your spiritual life, but I would venture to say that in a crowd like this, inevitably there are some of you who in the back of your minds, and maybe you've not voiced this, maybe you don't dare to speak it, maybe it's just something that you're struggling with, questioning in your mind, but in your heart of hearts, when you hear these stories, when you hear about the birth of a king and all of the supernatural things that came about during the birth of Christ, and you hear the Christmas stories in the Gospels, if you were honest, you would say, it's just a story. You know, it's just a story. Why are you making so much of it? It's just like Christian Christmas folklore. It's on par with Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. It's something, a story that we just tell. It's just myth. It's just folklore. And maybe that's what you're thinking. And if that's you, I would encourage you to investigate who Jesus Christ is as the Magi did. I would encourage you to be like the Magi because maybe you, like the Magi, maybe you have come face to face with what God's word says about who this king, about who the birth of this Jesus is because they had the Old Testament and most likely out of Numbers 24, they knew that at least he was a king, but gosh, their intentions to come and worship him would make us think that he wasn't just a king, this was somebody more than a king. This, this, this was a God or God worthy of worship. So maybe you, like the Magi, you're being faced with what God's word says about who this baby is. Maybe you're hearing it as you come to church on Sunday. Maybe you're hearing it on the radio. Maybe you're hearing it from a spouse who's telling you about this person of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you're hearing it, but you're exposed to God's word. And God's word is telling you that this is no mere myth. It's no mere folklore. It's not just Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. No, this baby boy is a king and he's God. And maybe you, like the Magi, you've seen some things that are utterly supernatural in their life. You know, God communicated to these Magi, I believe through his word, but most certainly through this star, through this supernatural thing, uh, certainly something that they uh, recognized was a sign from God. And maybe like you, you're having supernatural events in your life that are confirming God's word about the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe you are married and maybe your spouse 
has become a Christian. Maybe she's getting or he's getting religious. Maybe they're sharing with you about how this person, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God and how he's changed their life. And you are starting to wonder because at first you thought, okay, whatever, you can be religious. But they're changing and they're acting differently. And you are wondering, boy, what has happened to my spouse or what has happened to my friend or what has happened to my mom or what has happened to my son? There's something utterly supernatural going on. I want to share with you um, a quotation from a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. I don't know if you've read any of Lee Strobel's books, but uh, he works now um, at a big church up in Chicago, and he used to work at the Chicago, I believe the Chicago sometimes, as an investigative reporter. He's written a series of books, The Case for Christ, uh, The Case for Creation, The Case for Christmas. Excellent, excellent books. If you're interested Oh boy, I would, I would recommend that. But in, in his first book, The Case for Christ, he talks about his personal investigation into who this baby boy is. And I want to share it with you because I think it's significant. He writes, For much of my life, I was a skeptic. And if you were honest, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're a skeptic. You're just not sure about the person of Jesus Christ. He says, in fact, I considered myself an atheist. To me, there, is, there was far too much evidence that God was merely a product of wishful thinking. He goes on to write, that's all I have really ever gave the evidence a look. It was just a cursory look. As far as I was concerned, the case was closed, or so I thought. And then he goes on to talk about his wife by the name of Leslie. Leslie stunned me by announcing that she had become a Christian. And so I, so I launched an investigation of my own into the facts surrounding the case for Christ. Setting aside my self-interest and prejudices, I read books, I interviewed experts, I asked questions, I analyzed history, and for the first time in my life, picked apart the Bible verse by verse. And over time, the evidence began to point towards the unthinkable, he writes. If Jesus is to be believed, And listen to this. This is the most important part. If Jesus is to be believed, then nothing is more important than how you respond to him. And so I share that with you because maybe you are in Strobel's shoes. You are a skeptic. You doubt. I invite you to go on a personal investigation. Investigate Jesus like the Magi did. Find out who he was. Find out who he is. Find out who he claimed to be. Go on an investigation like Strobel. Buy his little book, The Case for Christ. And I, well, I can't guarantee you anything, but I guarantee you that you'll at least think twice about who this person is, the Son of God. And so number one, the first lesson that I think we learned from the Magi is that Jesus is worthy of investigation. And if that's where you are and you're a skeptic, investigate because what the scripture says and what your friends say who are Christians is true. He is the son of God and worthy of being believed in and being trusted in and following. So number two, not only is Jesus worthy of investigation, but we find out that Jesus is worthy of conflict. Jesus is worthy of conflict and we find this in verses three through eight and verse 12. So let's read this again and what we're gonna find out is that as these magi went on this investigation, as they sought to find out who this king was and to worship him, they ran into some roadblocks. They came into some potential conflict, even potential conflict that could have cost them their very lives for seeking to know and to follow and to worship Jesus. Jesus is worthy of conflict. Let's start and read in verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Note that. 
He was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Let me give you a quick background, a very quick background about who this guy was. Um, King Herod, at this point, was a man who uh, did a lot of good things for the nation of Israel. He built a lot of stuff. He was successful in a lot of ways. But history tells us that he was extremely brutal, that he was extremely, I don't want to use the word psycho, but he had a quick fuse, had a quick trigger, and he was bent on protecting his kingdom. History tells us that he killed all sorts of people in his family, wives, sons, extended family members, just because it was his throne, okay? He had killed before, now what is he gonna do? Well, he's gonna kill again. This is the man that the news came, not that, oh, you're the king of the Jews. No, where is the king of the Jews? He's been born, and it's not you. He didn't take that very well. Let's skip reading. When, in verse four, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse seven, then Herod called the Magi secretly, note that, secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now, why does he, why does he do that? Why does he want to know the exact time the star appeared? Well, because the star correlated with the birth of the king, and he's calculating, do you see this? He's calculating. Well, how old is this baby boy? Oh, maybe about two years old. He wants to know how old he is because he wants to know how many people he has to kill to get rid of Jesus, right? Verse eight, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me <clears throat> so that I too may go and worship him. Not exactly his intent. And what we find out is that this culminated in a fear from the Magi. Jump ahead and look with me at verse 12. And after having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, speaking of the Magi, they returned to their country by another route. And so what we see as we put this together is that when we come to worship Jesus, sometimes that means that we are going to enter into conflict with other people. This is extremely clear from verse 12. They were in danger. We don't know what this messenger said, but he certainly said, don't go to King Herod, and he might have told him why, because Herod, Herod wants to kill the baby. And so think about it. There you are. You visited this king. You've seen the real king, Jesus. You're gonna go back home, but you're kind of scared. You're nervous because this guy is not gonna be happy with the fact that you're supposed to report back to him where the baby is, but you're not going to. You're gonna leave. And so they decide to go a different route. They take another way. They entered in their GPS and said, nope, that's the way we went, so find an alternative route. And they found an alternative route because they knew that worshiping Jesus often brings conflict, but that Jesus is worthy of, of conflict. And so let's bring it home a little bit. How does following and worship, worshiping Jesus, why is Jesus worthy of conflict in our life? Is he, is he to you? That's a good question that we have to ask ourselves. Is following and worshiping Jesus worthy of whatever potential conflict it might bring in your life with other people's? For instance, maybe you're married and your spouse is not a Christian. You are a Christian, but your spouse is not a Christian. If you have ever been in that scenario or have ever known somebody in that scenario, I guarantee that to some degree there is conflict in that relationship because you choose Christ. And so they want to know, why is church such a priority to you? 
Why do you care so much about being with these people? There's conflict over certain moral issues. Why won't you do this anymore? Why can't we go see that anymore? Why can't we go here anymore? There's conflict over giving to the church. I sure wish that you would stop giving money to that church down there because we need X, Y, Z. Because when we worship Jesus, there can be conflict. There can be conflict with an unbelieving family member. I don't know if you are in or have been in this situation. Maybe it's somebody in your immediate family. Maybe it's a child who is not a Christian and you're a Christian. And they want to know, why are you parenting me this way? Why can't I go here with my friends? Why can't I do that with my friends? Mom, and maybe you get that anyways. uh, But if they're not a believer and you are, it's going to be even harder. Maybe when you go to family functions, and let's just say there's alcohol, which is not a, a good nor bad thing, but let's just say there's drunkenness, which is a bad thing. And you go, and you're a believer, and your family members aren't Christians, and they're getting smashed, and you aren't. I guarantee you that that will cause some conflict on family gatherings and functions. They see you as the fun killer, as the holy roller. Been there and done that. Maybe it even causes conflict with your circle of friends. You're a Christian, maybe they're not believers. You refuse to gossip with them, and they don't like that. You refuse to watch the shows, maybe, uh, that they're watching, or use the language that they're using in the workplace, and they want to know why it is that you're doing that, and that most, most certainly bring conflict. And the point that the Magi learned, I think, and that we can learn, is that though worshiping Jesus brings conflict, Jesus is so worthy of whatever conflict he might bring. And so the first lesson, he's worthy of investigation, he's worthy of conflict, and finally, what they learn is that Jesus, and this is the overarching purpose of this text, I believe, Jesus is worthy of joyful worship, of joyful worship. Let's read verses nine through 11 and see how the Magi worshiped Jesus with joy. Verse nine, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were what? Overjoyed. They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And we'll just wrap it up. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So what we see, this third lesson, what they discovered about this baby boy who is king and who indeed was God is that he is worthy of our worship. And he's worthy not just of our worship, not dutiful worship, not, oh, we have to do this, joyful worship. Worship that satisfies the soul and is what we were made to do. Notice what the verse says in verse 10. My NIV translation says that they were overjoyed. If you have a different translation, it's a little more accurate translation in this sense. Uh, Like the New American Standard says this. It says that they rejoiced exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, does that come across to you as like repetitive? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's repetitive, and it's purposeful. It's purposeful because Luke wants us to know that they, and here's, here's, what it, here's probably what happened. They, they leave the palace, and Herod said, go find the kids, so they're gonna go. They're heading towards Bethlehem. They step out of Herod's palace, and they look up at the night sky, and most likely, most likely, they had not seen the star for maybe some two years. They go on this journey. They had seen the star in Babylon, 
Every indication is that they did not see it again until they stepped out, journeying towards Bethlehem, and they see the star. Now put yourself in that shoes. You're on this journey to see the king. You've invested a ton of time and money, and at this point, you're risking your life. Okay, is the star going to reappear? And you step out, and you look up, and there it is. Whatever it was, there it is. And it says that it brought them they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's his way of multiplying words, which means they had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of joy. Now, I don't know if you have noticed this. You probably have because you hear me every Sunday. But I tend to be a little repetitive myself. In fact, it was kind of a running joke in my marriage that Shelley says, if you repeat yourself three times, then you really mean it, right? And so that's what I do. I say something I'm like, wow, that was a great movie. And then when I'm driving home and a second later, that was such a fantastic movie. I love that movie. It was so great. You know, I, I repeat myself, and, and why do I do that? Because the movie was fantastic, right? It's a way of putting emphasis. I really liked it. Asher, now, like father, like son, does this. And so when he wants something, uh, let's say he wants, uh, I don't know, to play a game, he often says, let's go play hide and seek, daddy. And I say, okay, let's go play. And then I say, okay, but we can only play for five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes because I have to whatever. And he say, no. He'll say, no, I want to play lots and 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 lots. And he'll just go on and on. And I'm like, oh, he's got my genes, <laughs> you know. Um, but the point is, that they had an incredible amount of joy. And here's the reason. Not because they saw the star itself, but because they knew that they were close. They were so close to seeing Jesus. They were so close to worshiping Jesus. Now, what did they do? They had joy. It wasn't just like, okay, I guess if we're going to go see the baby boy, we better go. Okay, let's just go. They had joy. It was their joy to do it. So how did they do that? Well, let's read again in verse, uh, verse 10, I think it is. It tells us, verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and notice what they did. Number one, they bowed down. They bowed down. Number two, they worshiped him. Number three, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so what we see is that they had joy, and then they worshiped. And their worship, notice four things. Number one, it involved their emotions, right? They had joy. That was their emotion. They had exceeding joy. So they worshiped Jesus with their emotions. Number two, they worshiped Jesus with their body because this word, to bow down, literally means you get down on your hands and your knees and you put your face to the ground. That's what they did. They worshiped him with their body. In a physical way, they bowed down like you would a king, kissed the feet of the king. They prostrated themselves before him. So they worshiped Jesus with their emotions, with their body. They worshiped Jesus with their will. Notice what Luke says very carefully. They bowed down, and then what did they do? They worshiped him. Now, these are very similar words, but the idea of worship not only means I'm physically bowing down to you, but it means I'm submitting my will to you. You are greater than me. You are the authority over me. I'm going to submit my will to your will. That's what that word worship means. And so they worship him not only with their emotions, with their body, but with their will, with their decisions. They submitted to him. And then fourthly, they worshiped him with their possessions and they gave some extremely extravagant gifts, gifts fit for king. And so as we close by way of application, I want to ask you this morning, are you worshiping Jesus this Christmas this way? I mean, is your worship of Jesus during this Christmas season full of joy and worship? 
Number one, are you worshiping Jesus with your emotions? Are you worshiping Jesus with your emotions this Christmas season? Or is it marked with things like anger over how your spouse is acting or treating you? Frustration with family members that you inevitably might get into conflict with. Frustration over your kids who won't go to sleep, who won't take their naps. Uh, Welcome to my world. (laughs) Uh, Over your kids who are acting up. Is it marked by worry over travel plans, meals to cook, bills to play? Fear. What will happen next? What will 2012 bring? Because Jesus wants our worship especially at this time, always. And he wants our emotions. Or is this season marked by joy, by an overwhelming, crazy, incredible joy because you get to reflect and worship and commune with the King of Kings? And so is your worship marked with emotion? Number two, is it marked with worshiping Jesus with your body? Because what we learn in all sorts of places, Romans 12 says that our body is a sacrifice and it's an act of worship. So everything we do with our body Everything that we do with our body is an act of worship. One specific way that I think that at least I will try to worship Jesus during Christmas, and I'll challenge you to do it as well, is by avoiding gluttony. I don't know about you, but Christmas, at least either at Shelley's side or my side of the family, usually almost always involves food. And not just food, like lots of food, you know, all sorts of food, generally food that's not really healthy, and it's always available. And so I don't know if your Christmas experience is like this, but you go and you eat whatever it is, turkey or ham or whatever, you know, whatever you eat at Christmas time, you know, Uh, and then there's food that's like always available. It's always out. It's always in the fridge. There's always pops to be drank or whatever. And so for me, I find it very easy just to eat, (laughs) just to eat, you know, And my hope and my prayer for myself and for you that we would worship Jesus with our body this Christmas. Let's satisfy this craving that's inside our heart that can only be met by Jesus. Let's not meet that by leftover turkey or leftover ham, okay? You can eat leftover ham if you want, (laughs) right? But let's honor God with our body. Third, are you worshiping Jesus with your will? What I mean by that is are you choosing to obey Christ this holiday in any and every circumstance, or are you choosing to do it your way, how you prefer? And so are you choosing to forgive maybe the family member that you have conflict with, her comments are said, maybe there's something that you, you dread going to your family uh, function because you know that you and that person just don't get along. Are you gonna choose, are you gonna bow your will at the foot of this baby king and choose to forgive that person, to be nice to that person, to love that person? Maybe by choosing Um, to share with how Jesus has changed you. One of the things that I struggle with most during family functions is I see my cousins and my aunts and I don't see them very much and I want to share with them why I do what I do. They know I'm a pastor, but I want them to know that I'm not just a pastor for a paycheck. Like I love Christ and I want my church to love Christ and I want them to know that it's not just religion, but I believe in the Son of God and he's changed me. I want to have those conversations and yet... Oh, it's so incredibly difficult with family members, is it not? So will we worship Jesus with our will? Finally, will we worship Jesus with our possessions? As the Magi gave generously of what they had, will, we, will our Christmas season be marked by generosity? By generosity to the church, by generosity to worthy nonprofit organizations, by generosity, maybe there's a, a brother or a sister in Christ and they're going through a financially difficult time and maybe you have some excess. 
Maybe you can worship Christ by being generous and giving of your gifts this Christmas season. Or how about this? Maybe you reduce how much you spend on Christmas. Shelley and I talk about this every year. Let's spend less. Let's give more. Let, maybe this Christmas you can be like the Magi. Worship Jesus, Jesus with your possessions and give your kids one or two or three less gifts and maybe give somebody in the Horn of Africa and they're going through the, the worst drought almost, I don't know, not ever, maybe ever. It's really bad. They don't have food. They don't have water. Maybe instead of giving your kid an extra toy, maybe you give somebody food or water or relief or famine help. Maybe you help those in our own county here that are facing poverty or don't have quite as much as you do. Will your worship of Jesus be marked by giving of your possessions? I want to share with you, as we close, an article that I found in a daily bread. And I think it's fitting for the Christmas season. It says, in December of 1903, after many attempts, the Wright brothers, and we all know who the Wright brothers were, right? They made the airplane. The Wright brothers were successful and getting their flying machine off the ground. Thrilled, they telegraphed this message to their sister, Catherine, and this is what the message said. We actually, we have actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. And so Catherine, their sister, hurried to the editor of the local newspaper and gave him the message, thrilled to death, and the editor glanced at it and said, oh, that's wonderful. The boys will be home for Christmas. And that was that. Totally missing the big news, and that was that they had flown. I think at Christmas time, in the midst of parties and plans and travel and shopping, we can miss the big news. We can get the memo that Christ is born and completely forget that fact. Let's not miss the big news. Jesus is born, King of Israel, King of the world, Savior and God. He is worthy of our investigation, he's worthy of conflict, and he's worthy of worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Magi and for the lessons that we can learn from them. We're so very grateful, uh, dear Father, that you have given us their example, what they went through, what they experienced. We're so very grateful for their passionate pursuit to find out who your son was. And upon finding him, they realized that he indeed was no mere king, but the son of God, worthy of worship, worthy of bowing down to, worthy of giving their emotions and their uh, possessions and their body and their will to, because he indeed is the son of God. He's worthy of the conflict that they would face. And indeed, you brought them great joy. Father, I pray for myself and for our people that we would have great joy and that our season here, our Christmas season, would be marked by continual joy in Jesus Christ, worshiping him, giving our life to him, thinking about him, and that would be what we're all about and that we wouldn't miss the big news. And so we ask for your presence now as we go. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.